to me, there's a feeling with psychedelic music that um, is kind of like something you can melt into, something you can have a, like a quote-unquote high experience with, with or without drugs. You know, like I think if I listen to something really psychedelic, like even something modern, say like Broken Bells, um, who I consider to be one of the, or, or Dr. Dog, you know, these are you know, fantastic contemporary psychedelic bands. I can put on nice headphones, close my eyes and lay on the floor and really kind of have like a, a, a melty, trippy, psychedelic experience without being on any substances. And that to me kind of defines psychedelic is that, um, that, that feeling. It's hard to put it into words. I think anyone who's experienced it right. knows it, you know? There's a spectrum. You know, the classic definition is, of course, someone's smoking marijuana or doing dropping acid or whatever, and the, the girls are in peasant dresses and they're dancing with their headbands. Um, but I think the psychedelia could be that. It could be worse. It could be a lot of bad trip stuff. Or it could be just the fact that the guys all wore Paisley shirts. It, I think the bar was fairly low by the definition. Think of the term psychedelic music in Paisley, Bad Trips, Massive Reverb, and experimental recording techniques may be some of the things that come to mind. But think of the where with psychedelic music, and my guess is that you first think of San Francisco, or Woodstock, or maybe even Texas, where Rocky Erickson of the 13th Floor Elevators was from, and who was one of the first to use the term. I would be willing to wager that you do not think of places like North or South Carolina when thinking about psychedelic music. But maybe we can change that with the help of Silas DeRocher of the Get Right Band and Ken Friedman, whom you heard moments ago. Starting with the dawn of psychedelia in the mid-1960s, there's been a veritable rabbit hole of trippy music coming from both of the Carolinas, which Ken Friedman helped document in the new three-volume set, Psychedelic States, the Carolinas in the 60s. Carrying the mantle of mind-bending music in 2023 is Asheville, North Carolina trio, the Get Right Band, who've released the concept album Itopia, their sixth and most ambitious collection. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and coming up, you'll hear from Silas DeRocher and Ken Friedman about the history of psychedelic music in the Carolinas, how the Psychedelic States compilation came into being against some pretty tall odds, and about the Get Right Band's new album, its concept and creation, and their own story as well. We'll get into the music too, of course, starting with this, the title track to the Get Right Band's Itopia. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories, and our episode on Carolina psychedelia then and now.
Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW at WNCW.org. To be honest, I had never considered the Get Right Band to be psychedelic, and before hearing their album Itopia, had thought of them more as a kind of power pop group. But when I started diving in, one of the first things that jumped out was their own description of themselves as a psychedelic indie rock power trio, which is a kind of an aha moment because I was also listening to the new compilation Psychedelic States, the Carolinas in the 60s, and thinking of how to include it in an episode here. Although the music on Psychedelic States and Itopia is separated by more than a 50-year span and by their overall sound, with the Get Right Band producing a far more crisp, bright, and layered collection than what the scores of bands in the Psychedelic States compilation made, the through line was undeniable. All these songs are from North and South Carolina artists who are tagged as psychedelic. These were simultaneous discoveries that were just begging to be put side by side. First, we have a current band that proclaims to be psychedelic, which I had not thought of in that context. And second, we have a massive three-disc compilation of first-generation psychedelic bands that were all but forgotten, with the overall feeling of discovering an extinct species in our backyard, only to find that there is a psychedelosaurus alive and well in the same area. I sat with Silas DeRocher of the Get Right Band at his home in Asheville, North Carolina, after he had also been listening to the Psychedelic States compilation, and this was his impression. One of the biggest things that stood out to me is how different things are than they were then in terms of sound quality, recording quality, mixing, um, and also just what we as listeners expect from our, from our bands, from our artists. And, you know, these aren't the guys that got huge. These aren't the Beatles or the Pink Floyds, but even when I listen to the Beatles, who who's one of my all-time favorite bands grew up listening to them i've listened to abbey road you know just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times i went through a phase where i tried to listen to abbey road and the wall every day alternating days just for like a year i didn't do it really every day but most days listen to one of those two albums so even like i think it's interesting how much uh we we have, as a culture have leaned our music toward perfection in ter- in terms of rhythmic perfection in terms of tuning pitch perfection um and i think that has a lot to do with or everything to do really with bringing electronic music into mainstream music obviously at the time that this compilation was made there was there was no electronic music and through the 80s and and 90s and then you know just more and more and more as time goes on we have as as listeners we've grown accustomed to say an electronic beat where it is 100% perfect there's four bars that are perfect and then they're looped for the entire song like all hip hop or you know not all most hip hop most electronic music most pop and there's no imperfection to it 
And then the same thing has been happening with pitch. You know, singers are having their voices tuned and we as listeners are starting to expect that. So it's, it's interesting to go back and listen to something like this. It sounds so raw and so live and so punky. It's got a real like garage kind of element to it. And it was really cool to um, hear that rawness. Like it's a really different aesthetic than I think we're primarily used to these days. I mean, it depends what you're listening to, but I think, and then one of the other things that it really led me to think about was if this compilation of raw, loose, gritty, garagey music is calling itself psychedelia and what we are putting out right now, which is much more modern, incorporates a lot of electronic uh, instrumentation and production and is just significantly like crisper and tighter and all those little screws tightened through modern music making recording um, is also calling itself psychedelia. Like what are the common threads? You know, that's, that's a lot of what I thought about. Ken Friedman has been a radio host for more than four decades from his tenure at WXYC in Chapel Hill to his current show at WHUP in Hillsboro, North Carolina and he produced two compilations in the series titled Tobacco A Go-Go, which were, like the new Psychedelic States release, comprised of Carolina bands from days gone by. I asked Ken on a video call about other Carolina acts since the dawn of psychedelia that also fit within the style. That's a great question. I am not familiar um, with the Get Right band. Um, I had my own group for several years called the Dirty Beats that covered a lot of this material. We are on indefinite hiatus and... Given the status of my knee, I, I think it's probably more definite hiatus. Um, so I can't speak to a lot of local bands doing this sound. However, there have been 60s garage style revivals numerous times. Um, in the 80s, it was called the Paisley Underground. Groups like the, um, uh, the Three O'Clock, uh, the Rain Parade, uh, and, and others um, fuzz tones covering the sonics, that kind of thing. And I'm certain in in my dotage, I probably missed a couple rounds of people doing that. Um, out of L.A., uh, what Vance called the retro revivalists, the Alalas, yeah. they went so far as to cover a Carolina, South Carolina garage band song called Long Journey. And that's on this comp. Or, um, no, they're, they're represented on this comp. They're represented, but this right. song was licensed elsewhere and was not available to us. Um, but the fun story is that when the Alalas played Asheville several years ago, Vance called up Rudy Wyatt, the author of the song from South Carolina, to meet the guys. And uh, a check was handed and Rudy sang the record on stage with them. It was a wonderful union of the decades.
This is a bit of the song If I Had It from a band named The Wild. Wild spelled W-Y-L-D. With the aforementioned Rudy Wyatt from Greenville, South Carolina on lead vocals and guitar. Rudy went on to reinvent himself as a boogie-woogie pianist called Rudy Blue Shoes. The Vance that Ken mentioned is Vance Pollock. Together, they researched and chose the 80 songs on the compilation. Fast forward to the COVID-19 pandemic, and Silas DeRocher, J.C. Mears, and Jesse Gentry of the Get Right Band have time on their hands, which, like most artists, was an enormous challenge to their bottom line, but was also the perfect opportunity to come up with a concept that would work across an entire album. Here's Silas DeRocher. One of the things that allowed us to really approach it with the amount of time and, and focus that it required, because it's such a large-scale project, was COVID. And we were off the road um, for the first time in you know a decade. And so we had time to really sit down and construct an album start to finish, as opposed to write a song, get it up and running a couple months later, write another song. And then two years later, you call that, you know, you collect those songs and you call it an album. So it was really cool to do something that, that intentionally. And then, you know, Pink Floyd in particular and, and that type of, um, approach to structuring an album and also that type of approach to what I would define as psychedelia but you know we can get into what what that means um and and I think what that means has changed in some ways and stayed the same in some ways but Pink Floyd was a huge reference point and some songs for example the title track on this record Itopia starts out with um these different cell phone sounds dinging and they gradually coalesce into a, a groove and then the music comes in over that groove, which is, you know, a direct reference to the beginning of the song Money, where they've got the cash registers going. And, and you know, Pink Floyd has done that move a couple different times. And so, yeah, Pink. So, sometimes there was a thought of, like, what would Pink Floyd be doing if they were a modern band, if they were a contemporary band coming out right now? And that song actually was particularly cool because we got uh, Bo Coster to play on it, who plays with Roger Waters these days. He's in his touring band, and he also plays in, in My Morning Jacket. And that kind of helped bring that Pink Floydy psychedelic synth vibe into that one. You've got a lot to say on Itopia. Can you bring us up to speed? What's the concept? What are you doing here? Yes. Yeah, so Itopia is, is a concept album. Um, it's loosely about uh, technology, social media, and the way our, our relationship with those things, which is, I think, something we're all dealing with. Um, whether we're consciously aware of it or not, but we are, you know, you and I are sitting here talking surrounded by technology and um, we were probably both on our phones this morning and that's affecting us in all these different ways, some of which we're all kind of aware of and some of which not everyone is aware of in terms of the mental health uh, implications of, of our use of technology and our relationships with other people and our relationships with ourselves. So the the album is exploring all those themes with kind of a, a loose um, narrative structure or, or an arc um, throughout the uh, throughout the record. So it's really meant to be ideally listened to start to finish in order. I think it, it's been constructed to kind of take the listener on a journey that way. Um, but of course, you know, again, with technology, that's not the way everyone listens to albums these days. So, you know, some people will be hearing them as, as singles. So we tried to really, 
craft things so that they could work on a lot of different levels, whether it was the full record or uh, singles or a listener who is into that sort of more heady social commentary aspect or a listener who just wants to chill or dance or groove to it or feel the psychedelic good vibes of it. There are those songs that you can dance to and have a lot of punch and and work very well as a single, as just one song at a time. Thanks. But as you point out, they're part of this overall arc, the bigger story of Itopia. A, a somewhat of a dystopian yeah. feel to this. Yeah. What's the answer? Where do we wind up? What What else can we draw from Itopia? Because we're in this quandary, and you... you you document it fairly well here, all of these themes that run through the record. What is your answer to that problem? I mean, first I'll say I, I don't think we have answers. Um, I don't think the album has answers. The album ends with a song called, uh, well, it's, it's called Black Holes of Negativity Part 3, and the, the line is, I'm saying no to black holes of negativity. So the album ends with this kind of... Um, tentative attempt at optimism in the context of all the stuff we're, we're dealing with these days. But I think the first layer of defense against things like this is awareness. And that's part of what the album tries to do is make people aware. Um, or, you know, for people who are already aware, it, it, it attempts to say, Hey, we're thinking about this too. You're, you're not alone in thinking this situation is weird and there's some real risks here and there's some real problems here. Um, there are some great books and, um, documentaries out there that kind of get into some of this stuff. The social dilemma was a, a big one. Did you see that one? Yes. Um, and that's got some, uh, like Tristan Harris, who's heavily featured in that, um, documentary, He's got a an organization, I think it's called the Center for Humane Technology, and they have a lot of actual like real-world applicable answers to this stuff um, that I encourage people to check out. But for us, it's a lot about uh, the intention with which you use technology. So, you know, you can get on to social media with the intention of connecting with an old friend, with the intention of seeing what somebody is up to or communicating with a friend, but you can also get on these things and let the algorithm guide you. <clears throat> and when the algorithm guides you, you're really giving up a lot of your intentionality and a lot of your control. And we know through, you know, researchers that these algorithms, especially something like YouTube, for example, are like gradually pushing people to more extreme scenarios, not because they're designed to do anything bad, but because they're designed to keep you on the platform. And the algorithms have discovered that the activating emotions that keep you on the platform longest are, are not the healthy, positive ones. So they end up feeding you in these like kind of scary directions. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing where awareness is helpful to say, do I want to go? Do I don't do I want to let this algorithm lead me down this rabbit hole or do I just want to get on YouTube because I want to watch the most recent SNL skit and then you know get off of it and go read a book or something I'm saying no to black holes and negativity cause 
all I want, sunshine and positivity I've been down too long, too much gravity I could use just a little bit of levity These times are tough, not much clarity And everyone lives in their own reality I could use just a little bit of harmony, yeah All this wasted time Some of Black Holes of Negativity Part 3, Saying No, by the Get Right Band, the song Silas mentioned in our conversation, which closes out Itopia, an album largely recorded in the band's home studios. Home studios did not exist for any of the bands on the Psychedelic States compilation, and the availability and expense of recording studios was a hurdle for bands starting out in that era. In our conversation, I supposed that a dearth of studios and music industry infrastructure made for a scenario where these bands were making their own personal moonshot when they recorded these songs. Here's Ken Friedman. Well, there were several studios in the bi-state area between um, Tar Heels and Palmetto areas. So like Megasound Studios in Bailey, uh, Romat out of um, Robersonville, Greenville, JCP in Raleigh, Arthur Smith Studios, of course, very big. Um, Pay-to-play label out of Winston, Justice Records, there's, of course, also Harry Deal's uh, Galaxy 3 Studios in Taylorsville. And you talk about South Carolina, I'm less conversant there. But, of course, Mark V Studios in Columbia was a, was a very big deal. Or Greenville, Greenville, sorry. So um, I might disagree with you a little bit, is that the, the bar wasn't that high um, to get a record out. But, yes, it did cost a certain amount of money. And so where did that money come from? A lot of parents looked at this as a great way for the kids to have a, an activity that was wholesome and kept them off the streets. So a lot of parents funded these things. I think a lot of lawns were mowed as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, anything would take to get a record out. And the cheapest that I think I heard people getting a record out for is just like as little as $250. But we heard from some of the folks who recorded at Arthur Smith. And Arthur Smith had a package. For $500, it wasn't just the recording session. It wasn't just a one take, get the hell out the door. It was a real recording session, and it included press, and it included promotion. And a lot of people jumped on that. And I sort of take it upon myself and my dotage to try and catalog all the Arthur Smith independent label recordings 
And so far, I've tracked about 700 of them in the 60s alone, most of which were kind of vanity. You know, you give them away at a sock hop. Uh, but some of them are actually very, very good and include musicians who did go on to do other things. You're right. There were a number of good studios and the Arthur Smith story. Boy, you could write two books about just Arthur Smith and and all of the work there. But the other legs of the stool, I guess, might be my my broader uh, point here in that the industry itself didn't you didn't have a lot of labels distribution it was just more of a patchwork quilt it was another era it was just like the carolinas weren't necessarily unique in that aspect you didn't unless you were uh in a major metropolitan market a lot of this infrastructure just wasn't there so that's the sort of the moonshot uh, analogy i gave um can you tell us more about some of the artists here because it's great liner notes ken and so much backstory, but there's there's a lot of history that's just been lost. So there are some some gaps where you just didn't really have anything to draw on. Have you found out any more about these people in the here and now after you found their records from the 1960s? That's something Vance and I both um, love doing. It isn't just to pull the record out of a flea market somewhere. It's you look at the credit. Who published it? Who wrote the song? Is there a can we figure out the date by virtue of what's written in the runoff grooves? All of these lead you to um, threads of information. And I got to give a shout out to Vance. He's better at it than I am. I'm OK, but he's he's terrific. And he gets to Library of Congress and other things and finds information. Um, and then you get the phone number. Back in the 80s, that wasn't so hard. There weren't any cell phone numbers. Everything was in a phone book somewhere. But nowadays, it was challenging. But Facebook would help, too. So a common reaction back in the day, and to some extent, even currently, is you reach the individuals, and they are just flummoxed that anyone would cared about this little hobby, hobbyist thing they did just to get girls back in 1966. In terms of stories, some of my favorite ones actually track back to the 1980s, uh, one of the big popular live bands in Winston-Salem back in the day were the Teen Beats, B-E-E-T-S. And yes, indeed, they did dye their hair red. And um, I'm Facebook friends with uh, George Samaras to this day, a drummer, and he's a cool guy. They had two records they recorded at Arthur Smith on and released on their own chain label. Then they got picked up um, by Dial as the Beats, and then they got picked up on Hickory as the Words of Love, L-U-V, covering um, Dylan and a P.P.F. Sloan song. In any event, when I was doing my research back in the day, I found Paul Doby, who was the bass player of the Teen Beats. Paul, as many of these guys, ended up in Vietnam. It's one of the reasons why these bands broke up as well. And I'm not going to question this at all. He got religion on the battlefield, and one can readily understand that experience. Came back, uh, became a Moravian minister, and is so to this day. So when I was questioning him, when I found him talking about the teen beats, um, I he was reluctant because his moral plane had shifted more towards faith rather than rock and roll. And it took a good 10 or 15 minutes to sort of chip away at the exterior. And finally, I said, you know, if you just could tell me one few things about the teen beats, it would be very informative. He's let out a huge deep sigh and said, well, we were the best. And I just melted away. And then I heard some of the anecdotes and 
Some of them bear repeating and some of them don't. But the truth, truth is, is that they are remembered to this day by the little kids back then who were folks like Chris Stamey and Peter Hall's Apple and the 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 seventies eighties range of um, of Winston Salem Sound, so their legacy lives on, and it's fun to uncover them in this way. Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the 1965 recording I Guess That's Why by Teen Beats, which got a lot of airplay locally, which is saying something, because if getting a record made was a bit like making a moonshot, getting a radio station to play it was like going to Mars. Like so many of their contemporaries, though, Teen Beats could not leverage that success into a musical career, in their case, not past 1967, when they called it quits. There are notable success stories amongst the roster of bands on the Psychedelic States compilation, though, like the experience of a member of Fayetteville, North Carolina band The News, for example. Their keyboard player, Jay Spell, who was blind, went on to a lengthy career as a session musician, playing for his friend Ronnie Millsap, as well as artists like Tammy Wynette, Tower of Power, John Mayall, and Lou Harris, to name a few. And Chapel Hill, North Carolina band Arrogance went on to make records for Vanguard and Warner Brothers before bass player Don Dixon went on to a solo career and worldwide renown as producer for R.E.M., Smithereens, Marshall Crenshaw, and many others. The saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same, applies as much to music as anything. Despite all the advances in technology, making it easier to create and distribute recordings, It is debatable whether it is actually easier to make a living at making music in 2023 than it was in the 1960s. And what is making it anyway, really? It can mean different things to different people. I asked Silas DeRocher about what they had achieved and what they feel like they have yet to reach. I think think of that answer in two almost separate categories, one of them being creativity and and the artistic side of things. And the other being the business career side of things. In the artistic side of things, I feel very excited, incredibly fortunate to have 
done the things we've done. This album, Itopia, is our sixth album. To me personally, regardless of what the industry thinks, regardless of any numbers that come back from it, this is, I think, the best thing we've we've ever made. It's my personal favorite thing. It's got uh, the song Hell Yes, Refresh on here is is the thing I like the most of what we've done. Like, I just, I want to listen to it. That's the music I want to hear. And that feels really uh, exciting, really satisfying. On the career business end of things, I do not feel like I've gotten, you know, where I want to go. I feel grateful and fortunate that we've been able to make a living, that that we have made a career. I am totally cognizant of the fact that the vast majority of people who want to make a living off of music can't do it. So I do think that's something to be celebrated and excited about, but I also feel like, you know, I have goals and visions that are far beyond what we've been able to do. And partially that helps drive me to work hard to accomplish those goals. But I think, there's a point at which in terms of personal happiness, there, there are diminishing returns and that, you know, I have, for example, just recently been trying to make a personal effort to change some of my thinking about the career, some of my relationship with the career, because there are so many things that are outside of my control and I don't want to allow those things to affect my well-being or my happiness you know so it's it's an ongoing journey there's a lot of a lot of self-work involved you know like like everything for everyone um but i think i feel i feel excited and lucky that we got to make a record like this and excited to share it you know it's not really out in the world yet we've put out three singles so far i think by the time this airs maybe the whole record will be out but as we're speaking here now the record is not out and it just feels really exciting to be able yeah, to it's a good share time. with people. And to your point, Silas, uh, one of the maybe not difficult life lessons, but one of them that that uh, was not easy was learning not to attach outcomes exactly. to any certain endeavor. Yep, exactly. It's you know it's easier said than done. It's it's those are I think words that I've known for a long time, but. Uh, have been really in recent years trying to put in the work to incorporate it into my actual feelings and emotions about life instead of just knowing it in some kind of intellectual way. Hmm. The whole wide world fits in my hand. The power of God's in the mind of a man. Finding my tribe. Finding new Closing out the show with Hell Yes Refresh by the Get Right Band, one of the singles from Itopia. The band partnered with animator Roberto Salazar on this and other videos from songs on Itopia, which are well worth a look. 
Thank you for listening to this episode, and we would be even more grateful for you to share this with someone. It is super easy to follow us on your podcast platform of choice, and then it will only take a minute to give it a good rating and where it's an option, a review. Great ratings and reviews especially will make Southern songs and stories and the artist hit profiles more likely to be found by more people just like you. This series is a part of the lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW, where we worked with Joshua Ming, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. Want to hear more about North Carolina's often overlooked musical legacy? In this episode, Ken Friedman mentioned that Chris Stamey and Peter Holsapple were among the kids who picked up on the vibe of local acts like Teen Beats. Stamey and Holsapple would form the DBs, who were hugely influential and popular in the New Wave era. My hunch is that you would probably enjoy our previous episode titled, We Thought You Wanted to Know Too, Peter Holsapple and the DBs. Also, there's much more conversation with Silas DeRocher and Ken Friedman that did not make it into this episode. So if you're wanting to hear those in full, please let me know. And you can find me on social media and by email at southernsongsandstories at gmail.com.